Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Balanced Black Girl Podcast. We're putting black girl magic in motion. This show is dedicated to reinventing wellness for women of color. I'm your host, Lestrandra Alfred. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Balanced Black Girl. If you're a new listener, welcome to the show. My name is Les. I am so honored to have you here. And if you are a returning listener, I am equally as honored to have you here. Thank you so much for coming back. I wanted to take this time to check in with you, yes, you listening, to see how you are doing in this moment. There's a lot of things happening right now between nervousness and very valid concern over the spread of the coronavirus to the presidential election we're in the midst of to everyday life that we all experience and the everyday challenges of that and having so many things really throw off how we all operate within our community and as a greater society has just been really, really giving me a lot of moments of pause. And over the past few weeks, especially, I think we've been able to really see some of the ways that our society does not work so well in terms of healthcare, in terms of particularly those who have hourly jobs or service-based jobs and what happens during a health crisis to those individuals, seeing what happens to students who are in higher education during a health crisis when they all of a sudden have to leave their campuses and don't have anywhere to go, seeing what happens in the wellness industry where spaces and retreats and and things that a lot of us, myself included, kind of rely on for a large part of what we do are no longer really on the table, at least for a little while. It's been giving me a lot of pause to really think about the different ways we're just really unprepared for a lot of these things to happen. So I wanted to invite you to really pause and check in and acknowledge all of your feelings, because whatever it is you're feeling in this moment is valid. And also, if you are using all of this as an opportunity to take you some trips, Godspeed to that as well. I don't knock it. Hey, do you be safe, <laughs> stay healthy and uh, live your life and enjoy it. But it has just been a really, really interesting, interesting couple of weeks. And I'm, I'm really hoping that we find some resolve here soon, very soon, like yesterday soon. So thank you so much for holding that space, for checking in and for still continuing to tune in and listen among all of the things that are going on because I know that a lot of worlds have been rocked 
right now. So thank you for still riding along. Today's guest is Bridget Todd, political strategist, media personality, and co-host of Afropunk Solution Sessions podcast, which is a show devoted to amplifying Black stories globally. During this conversation, we talk about why it is so important that Black stories are told in a loving, authentic way, essentially for us, by us, and why it is that no one can truly tell our stories the way we can. Bridget also gives some really practical advice for how to get comfortable using our own voices. If you are someone who really wants to put yourself out there more or really wants to feel more comfortable using your voice, even if it's within your own community, she shares some really great advice for how to get more comfortable doing so because all of our voices are so important. And if you are really wanting to put yours out there but aren't sure how, we want to hear from you and we have some practical advice for how to do that. We also talk about owning and protecting our creative ideas and our contributions to popular culture because as we all know, Black folks create pop culture. Pop culture revolves around us, our creativity, and our ideas, yet oftentimes we are not properly credited and compensated for those contributions. So we dive into that. And we talk about navigating burnout. Working in the media, you know, burnout is something that Bridget has certainly experienced. And I think for each of us, burnout is something that we have all individually experienced. I know in last week's episode, I talked a bit about that and and what I'm currently dealing with. And so really appreciated having a candid conversation with her around how she's navigated that. And hopefully it can inspire you to navigate that differently as well and to come to a better place of balance because that is what it's all about. So without further ado, let's jump into this conversation with Bridget Todd. Bridget, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited too. Absolutely. I mean, I love talking to fellow media folks. I've always been like a media junkie and love podcasting because it's been how I can kind of get my media fix. Uh, But I would love to hear what sparked your interest in media. That's a great question. You know, I've always been someone who loved media. You know, I was that kid in class who the teacher would always write, like, talks too much on her (laughs) report card. So communications and media has always been something I've been interested in. I sort of bounced around doing lots of different things, kind of media adjacent. I got my background as an educator. I thought for a while I was going to get a PhD in literature and, and teach college. And so that sort of didn't work out. I ended up being a PhD dropout and realizing that I just loved communicating with folks. And so when I found podcasting, this was fairly early on, like the early days of podcasting, this would have been like, 2011, 2012, I started working for a podcast called The Flaming Sword of Justice, which is a pretty strange name. (laughs) And really, that show was all about telling the story of social change wins, you know, with all of the sort of fanfare and drama and excitement that we experienced on those campaigns. And so we thought, like, if we could tell these stories in a way that was exciting, people would want to get involved, they would want to be, you know, part of that part of that win. So that was our sort of theory about this show. And it was great. I mean, we didn't really know what we were doing because it was so early on in the podcast game. But I realized that I really, really loved talking to people. I loved the medium of audio. I felt like it was such an intimate medium where you got to hear, you know, other people's voices in your own head, which I thought was so intimate and so cool, so different than any other form of media I had come across. And yeah, I just really fell in love. Oh, so, so good. 
And I'm actually really glad that you mentioned your initial experiences podcasting, because I would also love to talk to you about activism and social change is just such a big part of what you do. Have you ever had moments where you felt like you wanted to make an impact, but you didn't know how? And how did you navigate those moments? Oh, man. I mean, that's exactly why I do what I do. You know, when I first started as a professional person, I was in a PhD program for literature, and I was studying literature from a time period that felt very bygone. So it didn't feel very urgent. I didn't feel sort of like urgency around what I was studying. I was Mm. also at the same time teaching at Howard University. And I don't know if you know much about Howard, but the university in DC and the students there are known for being very civically engaged. And what's interesting is that even though I was the adult you know, person teaching the class, at the time, I felt very disempowered. I felt very sort of checked out of my own democracy. I knew that I wanted to be involved and engaged, but beyond writing a Facebook status to my friends, who most of which believed what I believed already, I really didn't know how. And it was my students who really inspired me to make me feel like I could use my voice, I could make change. You know, these were students who after class were coming up to me asking me to sign petitions to get the university to stop using specific kind of toilet paper because that company (laughs) funds private prisons, right? Like these were kids who really, really felt like they could make a difference. They could use their voice. And they never seemed to let that voice in the back of your head that was like, oh, no one's going to care what you have to say. What's the point of getting involved? They never really seemed to let that voice get to them. And so it was being around these empowered young people that really empowered me. And so I dropped out of my PhD program. I applied for internships and fellowships all over DC. I was probably the oldest intern in DC. The only intern was like a full-time teaching job on the side. (laughs) And yeah, from there, I got more involved in activism and organizing and particularly the media and storytelling side of that. But if it wasn't for those students and their excitement and their, you know, fervor about being involved, I don't know where I would be. Mm, That's a beautiful story. And I think such a good example that learning is kind of a a two-way street. From the outside looking in, someone may think, okay, well, you're the teacher in that scenario. They learn everything from you. But that's a really beautiful example of how you were all able to learn from each other. Definitely. Yeah, I learned so much from them. Like I really, they shaped me so much. And even though I was the one who was the teacher, like it was definitely a two-way street. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. And I think good inspiration for anyone listening who, if they feel like their opinion doesn't matter or they aren't sure what to do with it, just to keep going because you don't know who you could be inspiring. Absolutely true. You never know. I mean, all of us are influencers in our own way, whether you have a million followers or you have 10 followers, but you're the person in the family who everybody listens to, right? You never know how you can affect change. You never know who is looking to you as a thought leader or as a model for what they want to do. So never be afraid to use your voice, even if you're not sure, you know, how many people are actually listening, because you just really never know. Exactly, exactly. And even if not that many people are listening, for the ones who are, that could spark something incredible in them that can continue the message moving forward and inspire so much change. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about storytelling and about sharing our voices. It's, you know, such a big part of who you are, such a big part of what you do. Obviously, it's a big part of who I am and what I do with this show. But I would love to hear why is storytelling so important to you? Well, I think it's important because I think storytelling really is at the crux of what moves people. You know, in my work, we're always trying to get people to take some kind of an action, whether it's call this lawmaker or donate to this campaign or volunteer for this campaign. And, you know, the thing that moves people isn't 
facts and the figures and charts and graphs and data, it's stories. If I could tell you my story and make you connect with it and make you see why it's so important, I think that really is what is at the heart of driving change. And so I think there's nothing really more important than our stories, how we tell them, how we share them, and then what we do with them, you know, how people use them, how they move people. That's so true. So let's say that there are people out there, because I actually get this question a lot, and I would love to hear your take on it, who want to share more and who want to share their story, but they just feel just flat out scared, (laughs) scared to do so. How would you recommend someone get more comfortable in putting themselves out there and sharing their story? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. It's actually funny because people assume that because I'm a podcaster and I do a lot of like public speaking that I'm very comfortable doing it. But honestly, I was not someone who ordinarily would have thought like would be in front of an audience or telling an intimate story to strangers, right? And so that was something I had to get comfortable with. And it sounds kind of cheesy, but the first way that I started doing it was this organization called Toastmasters, which, you know, you go and you make a, a pretend toast and everybody there is really just trying to get more comfortable speaking in front of an audience. For me, it really was a muscle that I had to strengthen. And so I would say if you're afraid to start, you know, everybody has to start somewhere and just remember that it isn't the kind of thing that you're like born with or not born with, you can strengthen that muscle just like any other muscle and get comfortable with it. And so it's just about practice. It's about consistency. And it's about like pushing through the awkward and saying like, okay, well, I'm just starting out. I'm feeling a little uneasy and then pushing through and doing it anyway. Such good advice. And I mean, obviously being like the wellness person, I'm all about the muscle analogy because it's so true. Anything like public speaking, confidence, like all of these things are truly a muscle that you just have to work at and practice and strengthen. Exactly. Yeah. And Toastmasters is such a good resource. I too have attended some some Toastmasters meetings in my day, which is just such a good resource that I mean, I feel like there's Toastmasters chapters everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. I mean, that was really, you know, I once had a mentor who told me you could be the most successful person at whatever you do. But if you can't communicate that to others confidently, you're really missing out. And so at the time, I was like, you know, oh, I'm getting invites to speak at conferences. I'm like being asked to do this kind of public thing. And I'm so nervous. she was like, yeah, you got to get over that. (laughs) (laughs) Just straight up. (laughs) I love it. So also, in addition to storytelling, I would love to add another layer to this, which is also telling our stories as black and brown people, the importance of us telling our own stories in our own way. So for you, why is it so important that black stories are heard? Well, I think it's important because we deserve them. Mm -hmm. You know, we deserve to have our stories lovingly and thoughtfully told and have our experiences centered, right? Like nobody else, it's a given. We take for granted that other folks, you know, white folks are going to have their stories told but also other marginalized voices, women, other people of color, queer folks, trans folks, we all deserve to hear our stories told. And I think that, you know, I used to feel that, you know, we had to keep telling our stories because that was how we got folks on the other side to see us as human and to really like understand us. But now I've sort of evolved from that thinking. It doesn't matter. We shouldn't have to convince folks like that, that we're human and that we are worthy of like dignity. We deserve to have our stories told just point blank end of story. And so I think that You know, the more diverse, inclusive, rich, thoughtful stories we have, the better we can really understand each other 
And yeah, we just deserve it. Like black folks deserve to have our stories told, to have our stories amplified and to have that be a given that we deserve that. Fire. I just like could not agree more with everything that you just said. It's so true, Um, especially the point around not having to defend our humanity because unfortunately there have been plenty of circumstances under which we have been put in that position, but we should not have to at all. Absolutely. And I think that was something that I had to sort of sort out within myself, this idea that no, the reason that we tell stories is not to convince others of our humanity. If you're telling a story to convince somebody else of your humanity, like that is a problem within them that they need to sort out. Like we deserve stories just as a standalone thing because we deserve them. It shouldn't necessarily be attached to making people see us as human beings worthy of dignity. Exactly. Something else that I've learned a lot just in even having the show interviewing so many different women of different backgrounds and just having more conversations is that it also shows us that the things we experience, we're often not alone in them. Even last night, I was talking to my best friend who lives in DC. And so we don't get to catch up as often as we like. I don't even remember what we were talking about, all sorts of stuff. I was her about some problem I was having and she was like oh my gosh me too I thought it was just me she said that probably three or four different times throughout the conversation and I realized like the more women I talk to either on this platform or just in other areas where I feel comfortable sharing stories we have that moment where it's like oh you're going through that me too and even if it's just like that solidarity or that moment of knowing that you're not the only one going through something good or bad like it's just such a beautiful outcome oh definitely and that's why I think you know what you you do is so important. Think about how many conversations are just now being like pushed into the forefront that we weren't having five years ago, 10 years ago. And maybe we were having those conversations behind closed doors. But I think that that's what's so special about what folks like yourself do is that you can bring those conversations to the forefront. So folks know that they're not alone. And even if it's just a solidarity thing, like, oh, you're going through this, I'm going through this, you know, that's important. But also getting at solutions because we can't Mm -hmm. tackle issues if we're not talking about them. And I think especially conversations, you know, around things like mental health, around things like body image, around things like just how we exist and show up in the world as marginalized people. Like these are important conversations that I think the stakes are so high around. The stakes are too high to not have these conversations and not tell these stories. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I love that you just mentioned solutions because that's actually a point that I would really love to talk about with your podcast that you co-host, Afropunk Solution Sessions, which for listeners, if you have not yet listened to the show, you absolutely should. We'll make sure we have it linked in the show notes. For those who maybe have not yet listened to Solution Sessions, how would you describe the show? I would describe Afropunk Solution Sessions as a, not just a podcast, because we're also a live event series. We're like a global salon that is trying to tell the story of Blackness in a 360 degree angle globally. And so, you know, so many of the amazing podcasts that are hosted at about you know, Black folks here in the United States are great, but they don't necessarily take into account that Blackness is global and that, you know, being a young Black person in Brooklyn looks different than being a young Black person in France, looks different than being a young Black person in Brazil, looks different than being a young Black person in South Africa, right? Like we're all, our Blackness connects us, but it's very unique too. And so we're really interested in 
carving out a space to tell those stories globally. And, you know, so much of our world as Black folks is acknowledging that we're up against, you know, serious challenges, a lot of which that we had nothing to do in creating. And so we really want to tell the story of like what it means to be Black in America in a global way, but also not in a way that's like, well, it's all doom and gloom. You know, the rates of this are really bad or the statistics around that are really awful, but that really leave the audience feeling like there is something they can do to be involved, even if it's something small, because we really do believe that like this idea that some people are activists or change makers and they're sort of special kinds of people, we don't believe that at all. We think that everybody, no matter who you are, has the chance to get involved in the solution for some of the challenges that face us as young Black folks. Taking a quick pause from our conversation with Bridget so that I can tell you about this week's incredible meal delivery that I got from Methodology. If you've listened to the show before, you have heard me talk about why I love Methodology so much. And I feel like every week that I get a shipment, the shipments just get better and better. This week, I had some incredible gluten-free, dairy-free options, which are a preference of mine. I had everything from a paleo chicken pot pie to delicious matcha almond milk to these incredible vegan oatmeal raisin cookies. Literally a incredible shipment of just delicious food that I was able to reheat easily. It was right on my doorstep on Sunday night. So meal prep was done for me. So if you are on the West Coast, either in Southern California, the Bay Area, Portland, or Seattle, make sure you check out Methodology. You can go to balanceblackgirl.com slash methodology, and you can use the coupon code balanceblackgirl, all one word, for 20% off your first order. And I love how on the podcast specifically, you end with, okay, here's the solutions from what we talked about today. And I think you do such a good job of making it so approachable and tangible of, okay, yeah, I can take these things and I can apply that to my next idea, or I can apply that to what I do, which I think is so helpful because it adds that extra layer to storytelling. I think storytelling is kind of the base layer of, yes, we're talking about our experiences and where we come from and who we are. And then the solutions are like, okay, and here's what we're doing with that. And I think having the two together is just such a beautiful thing. I'm so happy that you said that. I think that that really is the hallmark of what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to tell these authentic, important, meaningful stories and then have them right alongside the sort of so what or next step you know? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple of episodes of Afropunk Solution Sessions that I would love to also talk to you about that I think our Balanced Black Girl listeners would especially love. And so we'll make sure we also have those linked in the show notes. The first is the Rest as Reparations episode, which I just really enjoyed because I feel like it did have a lot of like humorous elements to it. I loved how you shared at the beginning, like you were very skeptical of the idea of kind of participating in the nap ministry event and like the group nap, like, "Mm, I don't know about this in a way that I feel like as I was listening, I was also like, "Mm, I also don't know how I would feel about that and kind of took us along with you but (laughs) (laughs) through that, which I really loved. However, and I won't give it all away because I do want folks to go and listen to the episode, but kind of the takeaway there was around how important it is for us as black people to really allow ourselves time to rest and recover be it 
downtime, be it mindfulness, but specifically around the idea of proper sleep and proper sleep health and giving ourselves time to to do that and to take those breaks because it is so important for our health. So I would love to hear if you have had any experiences with either reaching the point of burnout or reaching the point of exhaustion and how you were able to recover from that and implement more rest in your own life. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. So first of all, I just have to shout out Trisha Hersey, who is the founder of the NAP ministry, who we talked to in that episode. She is a genius. You know, when I met her, we were at this event called the Girl Trek Stress Protest in Colorado. When I met her, she just like opened my mind. You know, I go into that episode a little bit skeptical. Rest as a like group NAP. Like, what is this? You know, I really didn't know what to make of it. But by the end, I was a, a real believer. You know, if I'm being honest, I would have to say that I think that I spent a large chunk of my young adult life experiencing some form of burnout. I really, you know, I wasn't raised in the kind of home where we talked about things like self-care and taking time. You know, my mom is a hardworking black woman and she's the kind of black woman who, when she talks about what fills up her day, it is work, it is paying bills, it is very practical, you know, it's food on the table, it is raising her kids, right? And so that was the kind of household that I grew up in. And so I grew up thinking that black women were super women, you know, we do it all, we don't complain, we don't need to take breaks, we take care of everybody else. That's the kind of household that I grew up in. And it wasn't until very recently that I took a step back and started to sort of unpack all of the different ways that that was not serving me, right? Like, I think I only thought of myself, I only thought of myself as good if I was working, if I was making a certain amount of money, if I was productive. So if I had a day or a time where that wasn't happening, my whole sense of self, my whole sense of identity was sort of broke down. And so I think I pushed myself because I thought that that's what, Black women did. I thought that, you know, our value was caught up in our ability to be productive. And if we were taking a break, even for a day, even for an hour, you know, what was our value? Who were we? And I really, you know, I think I had to go through a real reckoning of, is this the kind of life I want to have? Is this the kind of life that I want to be in? You know, and then if I lose my job or if I am not productive, how do I understand myself? I realized that I had to put a lot of my self-worth into my ability to be productive. And that really wasn't something I liked. You know, I live in DC and DC is such a place where it's so people meet you and the first thing they ask you is, what do you do? And so when I spent a period of time being out of work, I had to really learn to re-understand who I was in a way that was divorced from what I did or how I paid my bills or how I made money. And that was a rough process because I, I really realized I had not done any of that work. And honestly, only now in the last few years do I feel like I've really gotten to a place where looking down at what's on my plate and I like what I see. It's not too much. It's enough to keep me going, enough to keep me fulfilled. But I'm not trying to do it all just because I feel like I have to. I think when you are coming up, especially like millennials who were starting work around the you know financial crisis, you're always sort of like operating from this scary scarcity mindset. I have to say yes to every project because I don't know when I'm going to get that opportunity again. And so it really took a lot of work to say, no, I don't need to say yes to everything and kill myself to take on more than I can handle just because I'm worried about it going away. I can make choices that work for me about how work shows up in my life. And honestly, it's an everyday thing where I have to relearn it and repractice all the time, but I'm really getting better. I really appreciate your transparency around saying it is work to get to that point because, I mean, while it would be amazing to be in this dream state where we are all just magically balanced black girls who like 
naturally just do all of these things and and practice self-care in those ways, we are undoing a lot of programming that is like not only what we've seen from our parents, because I had very similar experiences growing up, but is truly ingrained in our DNA, which is what I also really appreciate that episode of Afropunk Solution Sessions talks a lot about, because it's just deeply ingrained in us. And we do have to actively kind of do the work to really prioritize and allow ourselves to not let that scarcity really get the best of us. Absolutely. And, you know, I I just want to reiterate, it's a practice, like you said, it's like a muscle. But I think getting clear about the fact that nobody else is going to protect the things that make me feel balanced other than me, right? Like I can't depend on my anybody else out there to be like, oh, well, Bridget, you know, needs her meditation time or Bridget needs to have X, Y, Z hours of sleep every night. Being really okay with asserting yourself around what you need to show up as your best self every day, that is work that like you have to learn to do and learn to be like loud and unapologetic and assertive about it because nobody else is going to do that for you. So like when I'm working, I know that if I don't get a decent amount of sleep every night, I just don't show up my best self. I know that if I don't work out for a long time, I don't show up as my best self. So these are things that I know I have to protect it. I have to be vocal about it. And I have to not apologize for it. Such good advice. So that really just being your own advocate, because you're right, like no one else is going to protect those things for us. We really have to make sure that we're holding that space for ourselves. Exactly. And piggybacking off of, you know, some of the conversations that we were having about storytelling, um, I would also like to talk a bit about the Digital Blackness 2.0 episode of Afropunk Solution Sessions, um, which was another really great listen. They're all great listens. These are just the ones (laughs) that I'm shouting out today. Really around protecting our stories and protecting our ideas and protecting just the beautiful artistry that we as Black people create and contribute to society in all areas. So, and actually that made me think a lot about uh, the recent Google ad that just came out, which I'm sure everybody has seen by now. That was like the Black History Month Google ad where all of these categories for the most searched anything you could think of. And it showed like the black person who was behind it, which none of this is new information in terms of what all of our contributions to society are. But what I really, really appreciated about that episode was really the emphasis on owning and protecting what's ours, our intellectual property and our language and our ideas. I'm curious for you if you had any kind of aha moments or takeaways when you were having those conversations. That's a great question. I think I didn't know. I mean, black people basically run the internet, right? Like that Google ad, I think really demonstrates it. Anything that is good or funny on the internet is like (laughs) there because a black person put it there, right? Yes. And so I think that I already knew that, we all know that, but the level to which we can be not protected and exploited, I think I had no idea. I think I knew it intellectually, but in researching that episode, the ways to which like people who have created concepts that go on to make millions of dollars, that woman Peaches Monroe who came up with the phrase on fleek, you know, seeing that phrase on billboards, selling Bath and Body Works and Arby's and all of these things and not making any money from it. You know, I don't think I realized the level to which we can be exploited and how that sort of baked into the system. I don't think it's any surprise that like access to legal services, information about intellectual property law, you know, financial literacy. It's not, I don't think it's any surprise that these things are things that have been sort of systematically kept from us as mm-hmm. Black folks. 
And so I think it's sort of the system sort of working in the way that it was designed to work, not so much a system that is broken. And so I think it's really up to us to protect ourselves. You know, if we put something out there into the world, knowing how to protect it, knowing how to make sure that if somebody's going to be profiting off of it, that somebody is going to be us, I think is so important. But it's one of those things that I think, just like with the self-care saying, like, we have to be our own advocates and we have to sort of know what we're getting into because no one else is going to make that easy for us. Oh my gosh, so true. And honestly, as you were talking about the system not being broken, but the systems working how they're supposed to be working to keep that information inaccessible to us, like I got chills from that because I'm just like, it's it's true. It's so true. That's what those systems were designed to do. Exactly. So important to really understand those topics. So I'm curious, you know, in all that you have done, has there been a story that you have come across that has like stopped you in your tracks or changed your perspective? Yes. It's funny that you mentioned this. I'm going to have to Google her name really quickly because <laughs> it just happened. So I just returned from the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, where I was there with Afropunk and Color of Change making a podcast about the importance of telling the stories of marginalized folks. And we talked to this incredible, incredible filmmaker who made this documentary called The Feeling of Being Watched. And it's all about, she's an Algerian American and she's a Muslim. And it's all about how her community was surveilled by the FBI for years. And so it's a documentary about her through like years and years of FOIA requests and, you know, legal challenges, trying to get the government to give her the information about how her community was surveilled using things like paid informants and how this wide scale surveillance project really tore her community apart. And one of the things that she talked about is how when she first started this project, you know, having gone to journalism school, she was trying to approach it in this objective manner, you know, not centering herself because she didn't want to come off like she was you know, biased or, or, or too close to it. Then she realized, you know, she was telling a story about how her community was surveilled by the FBI. This was her aunts, her uncles, her mom, her mosque. And mm. that sort of lie objectivity was broken down for her. And that we tell ourselves this lie that objectivity is basically like the perspective of a white male because white men are the only people who can like have an objective, honest perspective. And through making this film and telling this story, she realized that that's really BS, right? That we are the experts of our own stories, of our own experiences. And that, you know, there's lie that we can't tell a story that we experience or that we're close to objectively is just not true. And so, you know, I was so moved by her breaking down these barriers around objectivity and who can tell a true story, you know, and it, it made me realize the ways that we've, particularly for marginalized people, we tell marginalized people that they are not experts in their own experience. And that, you know, if they tell their story that, you know, they can't really be telling it honestly if they experienced it. And why is that? That's so wrong. And so honestly, just listening to her story about her unrelenting pursuit of getting the FBI to be accountable, I thought was so moving. And it really helped me understand my work as a storyteller, because I do think that as a Black person who tells stories about Blackness, particularly in the United States, it can be difficult to to want to be like, oh, well, I don't want anyone to say that I'm too biased or I, I'm not telling an honest story. But we need to just walk in our power and in our truth that we are the experts of our own lived experiences. And we can tell that story. And, you know, our stories, you know, they set us free. They're so powerful that we shouldn't be afraid of that power. Oh, my gosh. I feel like even just hearing you describe that, my mind is blown. So I cannot wait 
to listen to her story when it's released. I wrote down the live objectivity at, like on this post-it on my desk just now because I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to bold and underline this and just make this like a theme in life moving forward. That is Absolutely. so powerful. Yeah, she her story just like really moved me. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. Well, that stopped me in my tracks. So <laughs> I could see I could see why you had the same uh, reaction. That's incredible. So currently it is still early in 2020. Uh, what is next for Afropunk Solution Sessions? What do we have to look forward to this year? Oh, so many. I'm so excited. Uh, well, we were at the South Africa Afropunk Festival back in December, and we got to have a lot of FaceTime with the one, the only Angela Davis. Oh my God. Um, who is really just a living legend. Um, so we'll have a two-part special episode with her, really dropping a lot of wisdom about our social and political climate today. But also, you know, of course she has helpful and amazing and intelligent things to say about that. The thing that I was the most excited about was her talking about her life before she was the iconic Angela Davis. You know, she talked a lot about her friendship and relationship with Winnie Mandela and Nelson Mandela. She talked a lot about her friendship and relationship with Toni Morrison. You know, something that she said that really moved me was that she would never have written her memoir if Toni Morrison, who at the time was an editor, hadn't kind of cajoled her into it because she thought she was too young. She was only in her 20s. And that Toni Morrison really had this way of asking the Black women in her orbit to do things where they just felt like they had to do them. And that Toni Morrison wasn't somebody who was marching in the streets in the 60s and 70s, but that she wanted to tell the story of those who were marching in the streets to make sure that there was a record, a thoughtful and truthful record and account of what they were doing there. And so Angela Davis's words about sort of the other Black women who made up her ecosystem and her tribe and how they pushed her forward and inspired her. I, I really, I thought it was so powerful and a good reminder that these women you know, we think of as, as these larger than life icons, they were women just like you and me. You know, they were young women who were figuring it out and navigating tough things and feeling conflicted and scared and nervous and then like accomplishing these big things anyway. You know, it really helped resituate my understanding of what it means to be a powerful force as a black woman. So I'm so, so, so excited for folks to hear that. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to listen to that. That is incredible. Yeah, she's amazing. Oh my gosh. Like truly living legend. Love it so much. Okay. So I would also love, and we touched on this a little bit earlier when we were talking about arrest as reparations, but I would love to learn a little bit more about what balance for you as an individual looks like. So how are you currently practicing self-care? What are you currently doing to take care of you? I'm so happy that you asked that. One is saying no. You know, as I kind of talked about, I think for a long time, I felt like I had to say yes to every project, you know, yes, 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 yes. And even the projects that I wasn't so sure about, I was like, well, this seems like it's going to be a lot of work or like, this is really a lot of like what I'm trying to do. I would say yes to those and like clockwork, always regret it, right? Like, Always, always, always. And so when an email pops up asking me to do something or like proposing I do something, I really spend a lot of time thinking about it because I don't want it to be something that I say yes to in the moment and then spend a month putting off because I regret saying yes to it. So I really do ask, A, will it be something that like we have a value alignment where it's like their values and my values, where there's alignment there, then maybe I'll say yes. Two, is it going to be something that makes me 
a good amount of money where it's like worth my time. And then lastly, is it fun? Is it going to be a slog? You know, if it's something that it's going to just like feel like a burden, maybe I don't need to do it, you know? And so I think for me, my biggest self-care thing that I've been really kind of like trying to practice right now is being more choosy, being more thoughtful and saying no, thanks for considering me, but not interested when I need to. And really it's been an exercise in listening to my gut and listening to my instincts. So far, it has only served me well. And I love that those things are your gauge for whether or not you make that decision. You know, does it align with your mission and values? Are you being properly compensated for your time, which is so important? And do you actually enjoy it? Like those are great measures of deciding whether or not to participate in something. I love it. I'm going to take your advice. (laughs) Yeah, I think for me, I really had to get clear about that because there are so many projects. Like a good example is might not be an example that makes me look super great, but whatever. I'll share it anyway. <laughs> I, two years ago, it seemed like all of my friends who were creatives were getting these really amazing, flashy book deals. And it was one of those things where like, I found myself like, like rooting for them, but also secretly jealous. Like, where's my book deal? Like, I should get a book deal. Like, I'm going to try to get a book deal. That's it. I'm going to pitch myself. I'm going to see if it happens. And then I realized, do I actually want to write a book? Or do I just like feel like I should because all of these people around me are doing it? So really, I had to like, really have a long, hard think about it and realize I don't actually want to write a book. If I had a book that I was working on right now, I would be procrastinating and all the other things that I have that I enjoy working on, I would like either A, neglect them or B, start to feel weird around my relationship with working on them. And so I kind of was like, wait a minute, this is not a project I actually want. I just feel like I'm supposed to have it because it seems like everybody else in my life has it. And so that was an example where I had to really be honest about my motivations. Did I actually want this because it was a project that like made sense for me and aligned with my values? Or was it just like a thing where I was like, oh, well, I got this idea in my head and now I want to do it. And so had I actually pursued trying to get a book deal, I'd be miserable right now. I would be so overwhelmed. Oh my gosh. I actually think that that's a really great example that just makes you sound super relatable because how many times have we all kind of committed to something because we feel like we should or other people are doing it and then realize it's not the right thing for us. Like I can think of a million examples where I've done the same thing and regretted it. So I really appreciate you sharing that example with us because it's very relatable. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's going to be you working on the thing, navigating the thing. I mean, when I was in graduate school, before I decided to drop out, one of my biggest worries was like, oh God, my parents are going to be so disappointed. Then I realized like, my parents will not be the ones writing the paper or taking the test or like Mm -hmm. up all night. Like that's going to be me. So I need to make this choice for me and nobody else just based on, you know, what I'm supposed to want to accomplish. It has to be really coming from my heart. That's like the best act of self-care. Definitely. So, so good. So Bridget, what does being a balanced Black girl mean to you? Oh, what a good question. Being a balanced Black girl means being in charge of your own destiny and your own life and where your energy goes and where it doesn't go. You know, I think one of the most important parts of self-care for me is self-preservation and getting to decide what takes up my energy and my time. And I get to decide that. And so I think being a balanced Black girl is being the decider of where your energy goes and doesn't go. Oh, mic drop. That's so good. I love it. Bridget, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How can our audience keep in touch with you? 
Well, definitely subscribe to the podcast, Afropunk Solution Sessions. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your pod on. And you can follow me on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC. Love it. We will have the podcast linked in the show notes as well as your Instagram so that folks can keep in touch. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. What a blast. Yeah. 